everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome back to Before the Lights Podcast. The show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Let's get this one started. Go get your coffee or get a drink, whatever you prefer, and then tell your family, friends, neighbors, and strangers about the show. Today, we are joined by a 14-year NBA veteran who played for nine teams, including the 76ers, the Warriors, and the Wizards. He is a versatile, athletic, lockdown defender with an NBA lifetime average of 14.1 points per game and 4.2 rebounds per game. He is also the co-host of Believe in Wizards podcast. You need to check that out. And the founder of the Larry Hughes Basketball Academy located in St. Louis, Missouri. Please welcome to the show, Larry Hughes. Larry, man, thanks for joining me today. Hey, no problem, Tommy, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I want to welcome our newest Patreon Before the Lights crew, Platinum member David Thiel. If you'd like to be a part of our Patreon group, please go to patreon.com slash before the lights. Today's show is being sponsored by Reflection Bay Golf Club located in the heart of beautiful Lake Las Vegas. Go to reflectionbaygolf.com. That's reflectionbaygolf.com. It's a top 100 course. The public can play. It's a Jack Nicklaus signature prestige design that played host to the Wendy's three tour challenge from 1998 to 2007. And Larry, you've had a chance to play it. And uh, next time you come to Vegas, the round's on me. Let me know you and I will go out and play for being on the show. Oh, man, I appreciate it. No, we had a great time out, out on the golf course, man. It, we, it was doing a heat wave, but it, it didn't even matter because the golf was good. Uh, the people were great. And obviously you were, you know, helped me in uh, setting that up uh, for my guys to go out and have a, have a good round of golf. Yeah, I'm glad you guys did. Next time uh, you and I will go out and play. Larry, when I when I say STL to you, what's that mean? Uh, it means homegrown. Uh, it means home base, uh, St. Louis uh, to the fullest, and uh, yeah, it's, it's respect. And what was it like for you growing up in St. Louis as a child? Uh, well, I moved around a lot uh, growing up. I went to a different school um, every year until I went to high school. So me being in high school was the first time I went to one school for four years or for, you know, longer than one year. So for me, I moved around, um, stayed on the north side, uh, stayed on the south side. So I've been all around St. Louis, uh, and that's why it's, it's home to me because I know, you know, all the different areas, um, you know, of St. Louis. When did you start picking up the game of basketball and falling in love with it? Uh, well, I played schoolyard basketball uh, probably, you know, 10, 11, you know, really being out, you know, all day playing schoolyard basketball. Got involved, uh, organized basketball around 12 years old. My mom took me to a gym. Uh, coach was having some, some workouts or some tryouts, and she wanted to keep me out of trouble and took me to the Rock Church. I had a chance to try out and practice with the St. Louis Mustangs, and from then, um, just gained an affection for the game and continue to grow and continue to build. A lot of things were natural, and I just had fun doing it. Christian Brothers College High School, you won the Missouri State Championship in 1997. When you look back at your time with that team and winning the state championship, what kind of memories do you have? Uh, my brother. Uh, when I think about that championship run, I think of my brother and how he was really ingrained in, in that process. I mean, we were really doing it for him uh, at the time. He was dealing with a, a heart ailment. Um, so that brings me to the time where it was, it was about family. Uh, it was about competing. Uh, and you never want to leave 
your state without winning your last high school basketball game. So that was motivation for me also. Probably a feeling that if you think back, just never goes away either. No, it, it never goes away. I mean, there's tons of pictures. Uh, I'm involved with the, the CBC today. My son goes to CBC. So we see the trophies. Um, Mike Bartoni, who is a historian at CBC, has a ton, has tons of pictures and you know things from back in the day. I, I, his son was actually on that team. So it's a really, you know, it was really a fun time. And I have a bunch of, bunch of great memories from that time. So now your son needs to win one and, and match dad. For sure, for sure. And they would have had one. They would have had one last year. Obviously, everyone dealing with the, you know, with the pandemic and the, the terrible, you know, way that it knocked our country down. Uh, but they were in the final four and they had a really good, really good track to win their, their state title, but it just didn't happen. St. Louis Eagles, you win the AAU National Championship. Who is with you on that squad in getting to that pinnacle? Uh, everyone that, uh, well, a lot of those players that I started playing basketball with. Okay. Uh, the teams that I started with, with the Mustangs, a lot of those guys moved over to the Gators. Uh, from the Gators, a lot of those guys moved to the Pistons, the St. Louis Pistons. And then the St. Louis Pistons actually turned into uh, the St. Louis Eagles. Okay. So those guys were with me, uh, played a couple guys went to high school with me. Uh, Matt Boniak, Walter Moore, Justin Tatum, John Redden. Aaron Bartoni, Johnny Parker. Uh, there were a number of guys that obviously the world may not know, but these guys are really dear to me because of you know everything that we went through. So you guys were playing together for a while then. You guys were a really locked down group because you knew each other. So it makes sense on, you know, why you had the run you did. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, you don't have that in today's game. No. Right? Players are going this, this year, you know, that year. So with us, it was really about grassroots, and it, it was really a grassroots program because we weren't as good as we were, you know, winning the 17U Nationals, right? We were able to grow from 13U, 14U, all the way up until it was our time to, to win, you know, to win the big one, really. I mean, in, in that time, uh, the 17U Nationals was, was just like Peach Jam. Yeah, for sure. In 1997, you were the second team parade All-American and you were in the McDonald's All-American game. You put up 21. You played with Marcus Griffin, Luke Recker, and Baron Davis. But what I find fascinating about this, Larry, is you weren't playing against just nobody. The team you went up to against was Metta World Peace, Elton Brand, Shane Battier, Lamar Odom. I mean, that was a stacked team. What was, do you remember back about that McDonald's All-American game? Uh, one was trying to figure out because I'm from St. Louis, how I was on the West and not on the East. Okay. Uh, just trying to figure that, figure that part out, but it was all, it was all fun. Uh, but, but more than anything, I learned that when you're around peers and you compete and you work hard, that's where you gain your respect. And it's not about the outside noise. Uh, I was really kind of a, a laid back guy. So when I went to McDonald's game, I was really on my own. And those guys saw how hard I worked, how hard I practiced, and I gained their respect. And I had their respect like years and years to come. And we still have conversations about, you know, our McDonald's game. Baron Davis, um, Lamar Odom was, 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 you know, we always have conversation because his grandmother, you no, know, his auntie was there. And his aunt and my mom had great conversations. They built a relationship. And that's really what basketball is all about. You ain't kidding, man. It is the inner circles and the network and the love of family. And as a former coach, the outside public that's just a fan that looks at it from a fan-based 
and watches the ball go from player A to player B and to the hoop and doesn't look at the insides of the game are missing what the game is really all about. If you take away the love that everybody has from the coaching staff to the players down to the managers, you remove that, the game is not what it is. Oh, for sure. And I think the, you know, on a higher level, the bubble showed us some of that because yeah. it was elimination of the fan noise, just the elimination of everything except the players in the game. And you really get an understanding of how to communicate, you know, basketball language, uh, body language, all of those things matter, you know, between those lines. And if you pick up on those things faster than your opponent, then obviously, um, you know, you can be more successful. What was your college recruitment like? Um, it was it was big. I would I would say um, I was recruited by every school in, in the country. Um, I, I knocked down my my top five were they were uh, Kansas, Illinois, uh, Syracuse, St. Louis University, and Michigan. And I actually took visits to Michigan, uh, St. Louis University. I took an unofficial visit to Illinois. Uh, but I canceled the other visits uh, just because I, I knew where I wanted to go. I wasn't big on, you know, all of the bells and whistles. I was you know, really laid back, really reserved. So I wasn't, you know, really in tune with all of the bells and whistles, but I did have a good time as far as having, you know, high profile coaches come and respect my, you know, the, the, the house I was living in, respect my mom, respect my brother, uh, try to give the best uh, vision, you know, the best path for me to be successful and to make a way, uh, to support my family. So that time was, was great for me, for sure. Choosing St. Louis and staying home more for family and wanting to give back to the city that's kind of given to you. For sure. For sure. It, it was a lot of, of all of that. Okay. Um, you know, I'm from St. Louis. So I, I've, I've always felt like no one is going to take better care of you than the people that are, you know, than your home, right. Than the people that live where you're from, that, have gone through the same experiences and understand the environment. So I had a huge support system. My high school coach, my sophomore year, I actually went on to be an assistant coach at St. Louis University. Uh, so there was little built-in relationships that I felt that people, you know, at St. Louis University would have my best interests at heart. And I also, you know, obviously being in St. Louis and playing at CBC, we were less than 10 minutes away from West Pine gym where those guys used to work out of practice. So I would always go down and get in pickup games and scrimmage games with those guys. So had a, had a relationship there that was, and that's very important to me. Um, you know, and, and how I am is, is to have a relationship where I can be comfortable. I feel I can be most successful. Yeah. And that's something we don't see a lot these days, kids staying home and representing their area they're from and giving back. It's like, you know, and you had opportunities to go to bigger schools too. And I think that, that fatuation of I could go to play for Kansas or Duke or Carolina or Michigan or Michigan state just draws them away from their home. And I'm hoping to see going forward that we see more guys stay home and give back to what is given to them. Oh, for sure. For sure. But I will say that it's not for everyone, right? I mean, if you're a college coach and you're in the area where there's talent in the area, you have to make sure that you pick the right players. You pick the right kid because if you don't pick the right kid and you're recruiting that area, then you, it's going to leave a bad taste because for a hometown kid uh, that's supposed to be successful and they, then they go to college and, you know, the playing time's not there, it, it doesn't work out, you know, how we expect it, then a lot of people are going to be in trouble. So I would say is making sure that, you know, 
because of social media, because of all the platforms, it, it's definitely a different world. Um, but, you know, if you're going to stay home, you, it has to be the right player. I would agree with that. At St. Louis University with a freshman of the year in the 1998 USBWA First Team All-Conference, Larry, what do you remember about the NCAA tournament and that first round of, of beating UMass and, and moving on? I was exhausted. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I was completely exhausted. Um, this was a, a, a different experience than, than I've ever been in the NCAA tournament and also obviously the conference tournament leading up to that where I just had to play so hard and try to do everything possible to, to try to get a win. After that UMass game, I was excited that we won, but I knew I had nothing left in the tank. And those games come so fast. Then we were going up against Kentucky, um, you know, obviously the eventual national champs. But that's my memory that I have of, of that UMass game is not the points that I scored, not the plays that I made, but just how exhausted I was after that, after that game, you probably had so much adrenaline going to get it. And then when you finally get the win and the adrenaline leaves, I, I can only imagine sitting there going, I don't know how I'm going to bounce back in another day and, and repeat this performance. And that, that's exactly what it was. You know, that that's exactly what it was. It was kind of that professional mindset before you're professional and to, to really, you know, use mental versus physical, obviously as an 18 year old kid, I wasn't geared to put my mental before my physical. I just knew that my physical was, was very depleted and I didn't know how I was going to stand or run the next day. Speaking of the NBA, was that always a dream of yours to get to the highest level? Uh, yes and no. Didn't necessarily have aspirations of playing in the NBA. I, um, I was always excited about the opportunity. I always wanted to to be better than the person that was across from me. I always wanted to win uh, games, but I never, I never really had that, you know, that big, huge dream to make it to the NBA. My only thought was is to be successful enough where I can take care of my family. And if that was the NBA, that was the NBA. If that was, you know, going into accounting and doing something different, that's what it was. But that was really my only uh, dreams that I had was, was making sure that I was able to take care of my family. In 1998, you're drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers in the first round with the eighth pick. And for our listeners, let me put this in perspective of, of where Larry is as a player and where he was drafted. He was drafted ahead of names you've heard, Dirk Nowitzki, Paul Pierce, and the draft also featured Vince Carter. I mean, it was not a, a, a draft that you go, well, it's a down year. That draft was was stacked. And for you to go eighth, what was the experience like for you and your family on draft night? Uh, it was beautiful. Uh, it was beautiful. We were in Vancouver, uh, first time being, um, you know, in Canada and, and definitely as far west as I was in Vancouver. Um, it was it was an experience. I was able to have was able to have my family out there, uh, coaches, advisors. Uh, and it was just an experience, man. It was it was something that you never forget and you always can relive the exact moment when the commissioner called your name. And I remember everything leading up to that, walking into the green space, um, you know, our seating arrangement, you know, it was, a, it was one of the best things that that's happened to me, obviously, you know, in, in my life. And after the commissioner calls your name, 
how many times are you pulled this way and that way for this interview, that interview? And is it just become a blur after that? Uh, it was a blur. It was a blur. Everything was pretty much streamlined where you would go and do, you know, the team's media, uh, NBA media, but you were also lining up to get a flight, you know, from <laughs> Vancouver all the way to Philadelphia. Like there's no, I can't stop in St. Louis to celebrate. I can't stop in St. Louis to, to my homeboys to, you know, to, to do anything. It's like, no, we went from Vancouver straight to Philadelphia, uh, did our thing there. And from then it was, again, it was a whirlwind. It was about, making sure that you were prepared, getting ready to understand there's going to be a lockout. So making sure that you have everything in line, you know, when the time comes that you're ready to go. So that experience was definitely uh, a whirlwind. You might be one of the few players, if not the only player that I can think of that's played with Iverson, LeBron, and MJ. Starting with the 76ers, what was it like playing with Iverson and, and getting your feet wet in the NBA? Uh, I was ready for it. You know, I was ready for it. Now, like I said, we went in a lockout. So I actually went to Philadelphia early, uh, got a place, got situated, uh, hooked up with Allen early on. Uh, Aaron McKee was another guy we hooked up with. And we would go and work out. Uh, we would go scrimmage. We would go uh, do drills. Uh, so for me, it was a, it was building a relationship before we actually played a game. And, and also, I mean, I think that that's why we're so close today is that we built a foundation before we were actually – out on the court, you know, screaming at each other about pass the ball or, you know, don't take this shot or take that shot. We had started to build a relationship that we uh, wanted to support one another. Uh, and we wanted to see where this thing could go. What's the story with him handing you over the Bentley? Yeah, well, he, you know, it was after a workout and we went to get something to eat and, you know, we were all lined up for the next day. So he was like, okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to stay here. You take the car, you know, and you're going to pick me up in the morning and then we're going to go and work out. So I'm thinking like, Hey, I got a Bentley. It's like, I'm going to navigate. I got a navigator when I got out of college, right? I got a navigator. So to drive a Bentley is something completely foreign to me and, you know, an experience. So I'm getting driving and it's, it's not, you know, really picking up the speed like I, like I wanted to. And I'm trying to like figure out what's going on. And not too soon after that, I get to um, I think I get to a light and something wasn't right. The car kind of died out on me. So I start the car back up and it's acting funny. So I pull over and I call the guys. I'm like, look, like, I don't know what's going on with the car. I'm going to need some, some help. You know, never driven a Bentley before. I don't know what's going on. So time goes by, probably an hour or so goes by and couple uh Alice's homeboys come up and and they're laughing and everybody's you know cracking up and you know the jokes on me because you know he gave you the car with no gas in it and <laughs> and I had no idea what a gas tank was how to open a gas tank even what you know what fuel goes in a in a Bentley right I mean I'm in a navigator so I'm putting 87 in, in, in <laughs> What did the move to the Golden State Warriors do for your career? Because you went to Golden State, and all of a sudden, you're averaging 22-plus a game there. Well, that's what you talk about. Our draft was stacked, and it really, you know, me going eight and a lot of the household names that you hear, it's like, oh, how did he go before those guys? Well, it's, the draft is really done on potential, and, you know, my potential was really high. I mean, I was younger than those guys, and for me going out to Golden State, it was an opportunity for me to – to explore my game, to figure out where I fit in, you know, how 
I was going to be successful in, in, in this league. And that's what I took the opportunity uh, to explore, um, to handle the basketball, to try to make plays, to uh, be a disruptor on defense. Uh, we didn't win a lot of games, so it wasn't, a, it wasn't much fun, but I did get a chance to explore, um, explore my game. I was just going to say for our listeners, Larry did not play for the Golden State Warriors that you see on TV today. The Golden State Warriors team he played for was vastly different from what we see today. I do have to put that asterisk when I have conversations and, you know, we always ask, you know, who'd you play for? Where'd you play? And I do have to put that asterisk. Like, yeah, I played for Golden State. We were winning. We were winning 18 and 19 games. Right. Right. What was the 2000 slam dunk competition like for you? Uh, It was, it was, it was fun. I would say I had a great time. Again, I was a young kid, you know, enjoying everything that all-star weekend brought to me. And I didn't take it as a business trip. And sometimes I'll look back on and say, maybe I should have taken it a little bit more seriously, uh, but I didn't, you know, I, I had a great time out there with the guys, me and AI, we partied, you know, we partied hard. It was raining, you know, 24 seven. So I was, I was just in really enjoying uh, the time outside of, of the all-star uh, e- events. And I think I had a little bit too much fun. Um, <laughs> but I wouldn't trade it. Now I, I wouldn't trade it because um, I built good relationships. I had great fun. And then, you know, I was able to get back to work and, and play some basketball. Again, we're talking about the networks that basketball brings together, which is going to lead me right into the next one. And playing with LeBron, you were second overall in all statistical categories to him. What was it like for you now? Because now you're, you've gone from Philadelphia to Golden State. You play with AI. And now here comes LeBron. And at that time, Everybody, the hype was on him. I mean, not like it is today, and they weren't comparing him to MJ, but the hype was definitely on LeBron, going to be the next big thing. And and here you are with him. Yeah, I'm good with it, man. I, I don't have that sort of ego um, that would allow me to put it, you know, to dim someone else's light in order for me to shine. I, I don't have I don't have that sort of that sort of ego. So with me, it's like if you are who you say who they say you are then let's figure out how to win a championship because ultimately that is everyone's goal when we play in the, in the NBA is to have the opportunity to win a championship. And that was my sole reason for leaving Washington with everything that we had in place there and to go to Cleveland is because I felt that we had a little bit better chance of making it to the final stage with Cleveland and Braun and all of those pieces that, that they had over there versus what we had in Washington. Uh, there were other things that went in, into it, but overall I felt that, you know, this guy and his ability, I mean, he has a good chance to, to be an NBA champion and I'll go and play alongside of him. I'll go and work. I'll go and take on the defensive matchup. I'll, you know, take on whatever responsibilities uh, to allow Bron to be Bron and allow us to chase our dreams and, and win a championship. You spoke of defense, and I mentioned it in, in the uh, intro. I don't think you've gotten enough credit in your career for the, the defensive style that you've played and being a lockdown defender. Was this something that you had since high school, or did, did you start getting more into the defensive side as your career started to progress? No, it, it's always been there. Okay. It's always been there. I always have fun, you know, playing defense. I always have fun, you know, taking the ball away from my 
uh, opponent. I always have fun, you know, seeing what good defensive pressure does to someone. I always enjoy that. I always enjoy uh, making someone uncomfortable. So I think uh, some of the offensive things that I did or tried to do overshadowed, you know, my defensive presence because sometimes they think, oh, if you lead the league in steals and you don't play defense, you're just gambling. Uh, but it, it wasn't that situation because I've always tried to be a, a good defensive player. And I've always said, you know, and it, you've heard it a hundred times, you know, defense can be your best offense. But my, my philosophy is if you can get somebody to the point where you mentioned uncomfortable, where they don't want to have the ball because they're afraid of your defensive presence, you have changed the game drastically for on your end because now they're playing four on five because you got one guy on the team that if he gets it, he wants to get rid of it because he don't want to feel the heat you're going to bring on to him. That's, that's exactly right. And a lot of times I was put on the, on the point guard. And anytime I got a point guard to turn his back, I was winning. I, I was winning. That, that was my goal was to, is to have a point guard turn his back. Because, again, think about the rules that we were playing under. Right. I could give a little bit of forearm. I could do a little bit of hand uh, and kind of maneuver that guy where I wanted him to go. And it's nothing easier than maneuvering a guy that turned his back to you and you got a whole hip to kind of move him around with. So, you know, that was that was a trick that I had and, and, you know, was able to use it a lot. Where do you think the defensive game is today And, and not so much the NBA level, but in the younger levels? I think a lot of emphasis, again, is put on, you know, the, the offensive highlights. So I think a lot of players, especially at the younger level, they shy away from defense because they don't want to get on someone's highlight because they're catching every clip. Uh, if it's just one time where a defender gets the best of you and you may take a little slide to the right or a slide to the left, it's going to be on. It's going to be posted. You may get tagged. And kids today, they don't like that sort of pressure as we, we definitely know that they don't like that sort of pressure. <laughs> so I think that they, sh- they suffer a little bit because of all of the highlight reel stuff that goes on, on the offensive uh, offensive level. And they don't have the ability to not care if someone, you know, if they get dunked on or, you know, if someone crosses them over, they don't really have that, you know, they don't have that understanding you know, at, at the younger level just yet. I agree. And I, and I think you mentioned the offensive emphasis, everybody getting downhill. There's a few guys out there that, you know, want to step up and, and, and change that direction. And I'm hoping more and more get into it because the game could get out of hand and just become an offensive flow and turn into, you know, no defense. I don't want to see the game of basketball at all levels get to the point where we're just flying up and down and, you know, it's, it's turning into a complete offensive juggernaut and I'm afraid it may, it may go there, but as a defensive guy, I'm hoping it doesn't. Well, I think accountability plays a huge part into that, right? I mean, if you're teaching a game, if you're developing the game, just because you have a great offensive player, um, you still have to coach defensive principles. And if, if our coaches, our developers, if they're, if they're not coaching defensive principles, if, if all their coaching is, you know, offensive moves in and outs and things of that nature, then the young people, they're not going to learn, you know, a defensive concept, right? They're only going to be focused on the offensive game. And then when they see the NBA, where you got a thousand possessions in a game, right? There's just something that's lost in, in, in that translation that is, is a mystery because we don't have, you know, 
what we need to have is our coaches and our developers making sure that the defensive principles are being taught as well. And we're talking about defense. You had the opportunity to play with Jordan, who won defensive man of the year a couple times in the NBA. What did you learn from playing with somebody who's considered the greatest of all time on the court? And more importantly, what did you pick up from him off the court? Well, on the court, and we're talking defense and in a lot of scenarios, it's, it's anticipation. It's having an understanding of, of how the body moves and, you know, how angles are played. And he was probably one of the best at that. I can remember, you know, in practice, you know, I, I could get almost anybody with, you know, the two hard dribble, you know, from the three point line, two hard dribbles and the spin middle. Um, I would, I would get almost anybody with that. Right. And I'm coming down against MJ and I go one, two, and I go into my spin and I can hear him yelling. I got it. And he takes it and he's, he's gone while I'm continuing <laughs> to do my spin. Uh, and it was, it wasn't that he was faster than me. He wasn't more athletic at that time or even more explosive than me at that time. It was just about anticipation. And that was something that I picked up, you know, from a few other guys. But obviously, once you see and understand, you know, the greatest to, to do it, understand what his mentality is and thought process about anticipation, it takes on a little bit higher meaning uh, to you. And for me, off the court, it was probably, you know, his presence and how he commanded the room. And when he would walk in, you know, how he would, you know, really draw everyone to him. And that was something that that stuck with me. It had to be for you going, I'm going to my go-to move thinking I got this and you hear, I got it. And knowing, okay, I just lost it. Kind of like, got to bring you back to a little reality here going, okay, that move doesn't work with everybody. True. That's exactly right. The other thing I want to talk to you about, Larry, is you've had your deal of injuries kind of derailed where I think, you know, your career could have gone in 2005. You had a broken finger. You've had some hand injuries. How challenging was it to work so hard to get where you were? And then all of a sudden injuries kick in. I I guess it's a part of the process, man. And and I live by serenity. I I, I live by serenity. It it started at an early age when my mom just, just pushing into, you know, things happen, things happen for a reason. You deal with those things and, and you move on. And that's really how I handled all of those injuries. I mean, I hurt my thumb in a game that I was playing great. Uh, the all-star ballots were, were picking up, and it was probably a great chance that I would have been an all-star that year uh, that I hurt my thumb. Again, uh, being in Cleveland, uh, playing in the Eastern Conference Finals, uh, tear my plantar fascia. Again, put in so much work to be at a level to compete for a championship, and, you, and that happens. But you can't sulk at it. You can't complain and whine. Uh, you just have to continue to move on and continue to push forward. Uh, do I think I would have would have had a better showing or a better career if I could have had one? Yeah, but I think anyone can if, if they can stay healthy. I mean, that's really the name of the game. Uh, if, you, if you're playing at that level, is is the best you know ability is availability. You know, and, and that's that and that's the NBA. How challenging is it to? Be at the highest level at the NBA, you have an injury and you come back and you know the team, the managers, everybody's got eyes on you and expect you to come back and pick up where you left off. And that just doesn't happen in the game of hoops. 
you know, you need time to get back and get into a flow, but it's like the general public and the media and the teams all expecting you to pick up right where you left off and you haven't missed a beat. That's you're right, man. You're right. And I think the, the good organizations, they understand that process. They understand the, the, the transition from injury to practice, to scrimmage, to actual game. And sometimes players get in the way of that, right? Sometimes players want to skip a few steps because we feel like we are superheroes and, and, and superhuman uh, in, in some aspects. But for a player to give his all and to fight through injury is should be rewarded, right? Should be There should be applause for that. It shouldn't be um, cases where you're not as good as you as we thought you were um, sort of conversations. I think that that's a, a part of the game. Injuries are a part of the process. And obviously, if injuries are a part of the process, then coming back from those injuries and gaining and getting to 100% as fast as possible uh, is, is, is a goal. And it's very tough when you're playing in the NBA and you come back from injury and you're playing a um, couple nights a week, you're traveling. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into you know, getting your body healthy that can, can factor into if you're really, you know, if you're really healthy enough. The NBA is a business and it's a process. And unfortunately the good come with the bad and there's trades and you had your fair share of them in 2008, you get traded to the bulls in 09, you go to the Knicks 2010, you go to the Kings. What are the feelings like as a player when you get traded? Uh, it, it depends. It depends on where you're at. It depends on, you know, what sort of relationship you have with the organization. And uh, for me, the times that I did, I did get traded, except for, for Philadelphia, my first time, I asked to be moved. Um, okay. Whatever it was, it was, you know, it was Chicago. Me and, and the coach, we didn't see eye to eye on, on, you know, how veterans can help support, you know, the young guys while also trying to win basketball games, which, again, we're talking about business and that plays a part into it. Uh, Cleveland, it was it was time to, to, to move on from Cleveland. I had some 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 run ins with the general manager, Danny Ferry, and, and also having some a little bit of conflict with Mike Brown, uh, with Mike Brown. So those are the things that go on, you know, behind the scenes that the public, they, they may not know about. But when you are a professional player and you have ability, I want to make sure that it's represented in the right way. And we all have a voice. We all have the opportunity to play. And if you get traded somewhere, that means someone else wants you. And that's really how I looked at it is to look for the best opportunity for me to play basketball. And if you can remember when I started this office, when I growing up, I didn't go to any school longer than one year. So for me to move around, it was nothing for me. Like I, I, it didn't, it was nothing. I was used to it. Um, so I think that that played a part into me moving around in the NBA as well. What's living arrangements like when, you know, you're going from one team to another team and how much does the NBA help with, or they help at all with getting you situated a new home? You know, moving to a different city wasn't a problem. I had, you know, a, a really good circle that knew what I needed as far as my living arrangements, as far as me being comfortable. Uh, and then you know, later on, you know, I had a few dollars in my pocket. So wherever I went, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was living comfortably. You know, I didn't move into any sort of dorm sort of scenarios. Um, you know, I needed to, to have my space. I needed to be comfortable. I needed to live uh, in an environment 
uh, that spoke of, you know, being a professional. So the teams, they'll help you, they'll support you. Uh, but, you know, essentially, you know, it, it's your job to make sure that you get everything taken care of. How difficult is it to learn then a new system and find out what the new team's playing and you just kind of figure it out and meld in? Yeah, no, they're, they're all running the same stuff. Every, everybody's running the same stuff. They're just calling it, you know, something different or they have somebody lifted or, you know, it, it's it's really all the same. And if you are a person like me, like I watched a lot of film and, and you know, scout reports was, was really my thing to, to really get, um, you know, understand what the other team is doing. So the teams that I went to had an understanding of, of what they were doing. Uh, you had your three down, you know, sort of your floppy action. It was all like the same, you know, sort of stuff. So it was just under really, you know, converting that, that, you know, that knowledge of, of what the plays were called. It was really just transferring that information over to what the new team was calling it. When you look back at your career, what game or a couple games immediately come to your mind? Uh, I would say our closeout game against the Bulls uh, when I was in Washington. Uh, that was, you know, because the team, the organization hadn't been to the playoffs. I mean, it was, we had a huge buzz. Um, Chicago had a, a, a really good young team that was up and coming and expected to, to do great things uh, in the Eastern Conference. Uh, so that, that game, you know, sticks out. As to, to, it's really tough to close the team out. And to do that, you know, my it was kind of my second time around because I had been in the playoffs with, with Philadelphia. But closing a team out is, is very, very tough. And another game would probably be I was with the Bulls and we played against Utah and I hit a game winning shot at the buzzer. And it was a lot of other stuff going on and I was excited about the game winner. But I knew that, you know, there was still some other stuff going on. So that game sticks out as well. Was there a team you enjoyed playing for the most of all the teams you played for? I'd say there has to be two. There has to be two. I mean, Washington, uh, that team was was very special to me, uh, not only because I loved the city and the organization was good, but also because we brought in Gilbert Arenas, who I played with in, in Golden State, and then we also brought in Antoine Jameson, who I played with in Golden State. And in Golden State, we had a very bad rap of – you know, not being able to win games, you know, not being a talented group. So when we got that bunch together again, like we had, we really had something to prove. And we did a great job of going out and, and really proving that, you know, those three guys that you saw in Golden State, you know, it wasn't just because of us that we didn't get, you know, <laughs> that we didn't win games, but uh, it was really good to get to play with those guys again. The Larry Hughes Basketball Academy that you have there in St. Louis, what was your inspiration in starting it? Uh, it was really me being home and, and done playing basketball. And I had high school, my daughters were playing uh, basketball and my son was playing basketball. And now I'm sitting in the gyms and, you know, I'm watching players and I'm just looking and I'm like, they're missing something. Like they're, they're missing something. These, these kids, they want to play, they're playing hard. Uh, they're just missing some fundamentals. They're missing the development that they need to have fun with the game and be a successful as they can be with it. And for me, I wanted to, to do something in a development space where I put more emphasis on working on your skills than playing the actual game. And I know that that's tough for our kids and for our parents, but I feel like if we develop our fundamental skills and we just work on our game and we get reps in, 
we'll have way more fun playing that game than we would if we just go out and play four games and only practice once. So my goal was to really emphasize skills and drills, skill development, and then show and prove how much fun the young people will have if they develop those skills first. And how is the academy doing? The academy is, is going great. Good. Um, like I said, we have a huge emphasis on skill development. Uh, we're also bringing in technology uh, to make sure that we are keeping things fun and, and also have something to report back to the young people because today they want to see results. They want to know how they're doing. They want to know where they can improve. And we use technology now to, to give them that edge, to keep them in the game so they can continue to grow it. And, and find a love you know, for, for the basketball game. And we have teams. Uh, we have you know, over 200 kids in our team play program, uh, which is very important because I was able to mix in you know, not only multiple practices a week, but I was also able to mix in a skills night a week. So even though that they're doing teams and they love the teams and they love to put the uniforms on, they're in the gym at least three days out of the week developing their game during practice. They're developing their, their team skills. And then when they're in skills and drills, they're developing their individual skills so they can now help their team compete and be better. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for listeners. If you want to check it out, I highly recommend you click on the link. And if you live in the St. Louis area, I would really urge you to go down there and take a firsthand look. And if you have a child, uh, I would make. I would really recommend you go sign them up with Larry's Academy. Larry, what is your opinion on the future of the NBA? I think it's in a great space. I think it's in a great space. And we talk about skill development and like these guys that are coming in. I mean, they're very skilled as far as, you know, being able to handle the basketball. And I say handle the basketball. That's not just about dribbling. That's also, you know, passing the basketball, moving the basketball, moving without the basketball. And I just see, you know, our young people, you know, those that take, you know, take advantage of the skill development. Those are the, the, the guys or the kids that are making it to the NBA. And you can see how much that they develop. You can see that they have the proper mechanics. You can see the thought process that these guys have. You can watch, you know, a, a Zion play and you can you can you can see that he knows that he is strong and powerful. And he uses that to his advantage. So these are all things that I see happen in skill development where you know your game, you know yourself. And I think the guys that are playing in the NBA are, you know, are going to take this thing to a new level, especially on the offensive end because you have so many possessions and you need everyone on the court to be a skilled player. And I think that that's an advantage of the league today is that there's no, you know, everybody you throw the ball to, they either got to be able to make a swing pass, hit a three, or, you know, hit the cutter going to the basket on a bounce pass. So there's no longer, you know, just your big center who's out there just running around setting screens and, and, and things of that nature. How's your game these days? Uh, it's very uh, standard or stand stillish. Stand stillish. I can stand still with the best of them. <laughs> That's not the Larry Hughes I can remember of anybody standing still. So I, it's a hard picture for me to get in my mind. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm, I'm working on that Jackie Robinson, man. I'm working on 42, man. I'll be 42 in January. You have that uh, podcast called Believe in the Wizards that you guys have just started, you and, and Matt Moderno. How's that going for you? 
Uh, it's going great. It's going great. I took the opportunity to step outside the box a little bit um, and, you know, do something that's a little bit different than my personality. And that's getting, you know, into the media space and, you know, doing interviews and, you know, having a weekly situation where you, you're committed to, uh, you res- I respect my, my co-host and we respect our guests. Um, and it's something that I don't take lightly. Uh, we do a little bit of research. Uh, we share information. So for me, it was an experience to really step outside the box and, and do something different and do something that people wouldn't expect me to do. I wish you the best with it. And thanks for your time today and being on my show. I, this has been fun. Oh, man. Thanks for having me. Anytime. For show notes, go to our website, BeforeTheLightsPod.com. Follow us on Instagram, Before the Lights Podcast. If you'd like to join and listen to the extra five, you need to join the Patreon group. That is patreon.com slash before the lights. The extra five is coming up with Larry Hughes. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, a salute. Attention. <laughs>